seconds flat. Give me up. Put it down, put it down. Stand by for the kick of Dave Waddle. If he's got it, he could make it. I think he did. Dave Waddle wants to go This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Hello again, friends, and welcome to Mile 140 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. We are jam-packed this week with lots of training talk. But first, Phil, how are you, buddy? Doing good, man. It's good to see you. Great to see you. I just want you to know it was a lovely, like, 55, 60-degree day down here in Greenville. Mm. Well, I understand you woke up to a nice little blanket of snow up there. Yeah, we had some flurries. It was incredibly windy. It was it was windy and cold enough that we pivoted the workout this morning to some hills just to do something focused on effort in an area that was a little more protected from the wind. It was it was set to be my first Monteghetti fartlek of Ooh. the year of 2023, but that uh-huh. did not happen. That'll get pushed back a little bit, but on that note, what I wanted to open with, Phil, did you watch the Australian World Cross Trials? Uh, I am embarrassed to say I have not. Mm. Even more so because I am so excited for World Cross Country being held there. So I did not get a taste of that course that they're going to have. It's good to see 2023 opening just the way that 2022 ended. Where I do tireless research for this program, you come on entirely unprepared and you just use your beautiful good looks to win over all the women in the audience with no actual idea of what we're talking about. So I think the strategy here that I've taken was pretty much the rest of my life. It's just to fake it until you make it. That's 90% of the battle. Mm. I sent you the link. I mean, I made this. I made this easy for you, Phil. <laughs> I hmm. think it was in my junk mail somewhere. But well, um, as an aside, we do need to point out that Phil and I no longer text each other. Our relationship has moved to a point where now we are only using email. <laughs> I don't even remember why it began, but 2023, we're emailing each other, which means there's like an eight-hour delay in any communication because <laughs> neither of us check our email frequently. Which is as it should be because. You know, through the day, there are probably four channels of communication where I feel like I'm expected to immediately respond, and it absolutely drives me nuts. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to know that, you know, if I don't get back to you until later that afternoon or two or three days later, it's okay. I still love you. And oh. This is why, to your point, that's why I don't keep my email on my phone. I don't want to have that cons. I want to be able to interact with the people that I'm sharing space with in life. And then, you know, I, it's not like I'm waiting weeks to email you. I get back to you that day. So, uh, but clearly my uh, stuff has gone straight to your spam folder because I sent you the link to the live coverage of the Australian World Cross Trials. You didn't see it, but Gosh, I, I'm so hopeful for the day when we get coverage like this from USA Track and Field. It's a pipe dream, but we can hope. They had a live stream on YouTube. They kept that replay stream up. It, you can still go on to Athletics Australia and watch these races we're going to talk about. There were no commercials. There was really good announcing. And the whole thing is totally free. Now, Phil, this was not 
on the course at Bathurst where they will host the world champs next month. Oh, um, you see how much research I did on that. Yeah, clearly. I'm, I'm going to cover for you here, but it was in Canberra and just an absolutely breathtaking setting at uh, Stromlo Forest Park. So this area was ravaged by bushfires about two decades ago, and Rob D. Costella was the key figure in championing a permanent cross-country course on the reclaimed ground. Imagine this setting, and Phil, you'll have to imagine with the audience since you chose not to watch. Uh, You have the mountains in the background. There's ponds strategically throughout the park. There's kangaroos hopping around the edge of the screen. And then the centerpiece is this beautifully manicured grass strip that it's... uh, like the grass you would see on a putting green. It's incredibly well manicured on this serpentine path following through a bunch of rolling hills, an incredible scene. I venture, Phil, that we need a training camp in Australia. We do sessions on this cross-country course. We go down, we hit Melbourne, we hit the beach, go up to Falls Creek for altitude. Are you in? Oh, 100%. Yeah, we should, fantastic. we should do a seconds flat trip see if who, who's willing to come with us maybe there's some crazy person out there who like you enjoys dots in their halloween candy who would be willing to <laughs> to go to the southern hemisphere with us i feel i want you to know also remember we did ask for emails of anyone who likes dots who listens uh-huh. to the program do you know how many responses i've gotten probably thousands zero zero <laughs> people have written in to share your love for the dot back to the cross-country action there were go ahead Phil. Emphasis on the importance of gummy candy, specifically dots, as fueling, proper fueling for distance running. I think it's underrated. Maybe we will address that in a future show. It did not come up in the listener questions. We have a bunch of listener questions that we're going to get to later as our main topics on training. Uh, None of them ventured into the dots as fueling world, but perhaps for another episode. And when I say that, Phil, of course, I mean we are never going to discuss this again. The top three at the Australian Cross Trials were auto qualifiers in the 10K races, and it was a Melbourne Track Club sweep in the men's race. That's the Nick Badeau group, with Matthew Ramsden taking it out very hard, then hanging on to Make the top three, if you're familiar with Matthew Ramsden, he is more of a 1,500-meter type guy, but in this golden age of Australian mid-distance with Ollie Horse, Stewie McSwain, those guys ahead of him, this shift up to the uh, 10K cross made some sense, and Australian 10K national record holder Jack Rayner got the win, and their marathon record holder Brett Robinson also made the squad, so those three are locks for their world team. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, that's a, that's a good group. Good top yeah. three. By the time this show is published, we will know the rest of the roster who they are filling in with their discretionary picks. In the women's race, Rose Davies was very strong from start to finish. She took the women's victory. She'll be joined by Leanne Pompiani and Caitlin Adams. But the big excitement for the Aussies is in the 2K as they will be a medal favorite in the 4x2K mixed relay. So that's two men, two women. I'm excited about that format. That should be fantastic. It's going to be a lot of fun, Phil. And we can expect, uh, with a number of the other countries having their some of their best athletes in the 10K race, 
The Australian team will be exceptionally dangerous as a medal contender, perhaps favorite, because some of their top runners are in that mixed relay. Stewie McSwain won that qualifier, and we expect Ollie Hoare to be their discretionary pick to join him. So you have two of the best milers in the world. And they'll be joined from the women's race by Abby Caldwell. She was the outright winner. She was uh, most recently the 1,500-meter bronze winner at the Commonwealth Games. And most likely former Oregon star Jess Hull will join her. Perhaps Lyndon Hall, also incredibly talented, but she was edged out by Jess Hall by one spot in for second. So we'll see how that team shakes out, but that 4x2K team is uh, going to be fun to watch and, and could be a gold contender. We have USA Cross Champs this weekend, Phil. We'll get an idea of who we are sending to Bathurst, Australia. That race will also be complete, and we'll know who has won before we get this episode uploaded. But Phil, have you looked at the entry list? Do you want to make any picks? Oh, yet again, I have not done my research on this topic. Holy cow, why do people listen to us? Oh, because of your smooth voice, Travis. Yeah, I bet that's it. Let me run through a few of these real quick just to give you an idea, Phil, in case you care. We had on the men's list, on the start line, uh, some of potential favorites. Uh, Hillary Bohr, Ian Butler, Sammy Chalanga. It's a big name. Andrew Colley has had a nice season. He will be there as well. Eric Jenkins makes his return. Uh, Nike athlete. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see what kind of shape that he is in. That entire U.S. Army team is there, led by Lenny Career. He has to be one of the favorites. Dylan, Dylan Maggard, former Blue Jean Mile record holder, which he lost to Johnny Gregoric now, but Dylan Maggard may be a name to watch. Nico Montanez from ASICS and the Mammoth Lake team. Zach Panning, uh, Hanson Brooks. And the list goes on from there. And when you scroll down to the very bottom, you get to a name that I am excited about. Actually, I'll take one step back. A name that probably excites you as a Furman guy, Aaron Templeton, will be in the action. But Jared Ward makes his return to the grass in Richmond this weekend. Any thoughts there, Phil? First, I'm excited about Aaron Templeton coming back because he has been out really for a couple years with some injury issues. Yeah, on and off almost since he joined 10-man. Yep, pretty much ever since he finished finished out at Furman. So it, it's yeah. good to see him training well and getting back in the mix. So it'll be exciting to see how he does. Yeah, and so we're missing some of the biggest names in that men's race. Of course, we're not going to see Galen Rupp. We're not, Grant Fisher, Connor Mance would have been a fun one to have in there. I mean, those three on this team would be, to me, the heavy hitters. Mance, of course, just ran Houston. He was the top American. I missed on my uh, guess of him going sub-60, but I did hit... Phil on my Emily Sisson new American half marathon record. Oh, I knew I was going to hear about that as soon as I saw that result. Well, you know, I'm at least bold enough to make picks. Let's <laughs> talk about the women's roster for uh, U.S. cross champs. Stephanie Bruce, as she continues her farewell tour. I'd love to see her up in the mix. That'd be fun. Uh, Maybe where she's continuing the farewell tour. It's kind of like an Elton John thing where it's uh, <laughs> tiring, but it'll be a couple yeah, it, it might be like the last time you can see Elton John in concert. I believe that's, that's been said since like 2009. Uh-huh, that's right. But so, good for her. Yeah, yeah, and, and she's having a good season. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm glad to see it. Guest of the show, former Furman star as well, Ali Bukowski will be there. Wayne Kalati, probably one of the favorites. Edna Kurgot is 
on the start line as well. McKenna Morley, who's had a good year. Ali Ostrander, interesting name to see. She's been on and off in, in recent years with some injury issues. Laura Thweet from Saucony. We've left out a number of contenders, but there, there's some big names. However, we know there's a lot of names missing. And frankly, to me, it's a little disappointing that I understand the difficulty in traveling to a different hemisphere for a world championship particularly one which I believe butts up seven days away from one of the biggest indoor meets of the year at the Melrose in New York. But it's a world championships. And I, I just think it's undervalued. And it's it's such a fun event. And it, it might be historically the greats. If, we're gonna, if you're going to pick the greats of all time, they've had success on the grass. Mm-hmm. Well, let and, me ask you, why do you think the U.S.? is not fielding as strong a field for our qualifier compared to, I mean, Australia makes sense because they're hosting, mm-hmm. but also, I mean, they are loaded with guys that have had success at that distance. Now, you're going to see a great team out of Kenya. You're going to see a great team out of Ethiopia. And if we look at the list of big-time American distance runners, they all had success in college cross-country. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like cross-country doesn't exist in the U.S. in the pro ranks. Yeah, your your point is well made. The success those guys had in college, and that's makes it even more disappointing that they're not at this event. A couple factors I see. One, some of our top professional teams race very infrequently. They may occasionally time trial, occasionally race. And I get how that makes it tough to fit into their calendar when they just don't race a lot. Maybe they don't race enough. Yeah. I'm certain there are sponsorship concerns in that some of these athletes, they understand where their bread is buttered. They they have contractual act expectations that their shoe sponsor may not value something that's happening on the other side of the world and doesn't get a bunch of TV coverage. I understand that as well. I think we've also perhaps de-emphasized, this was the point I was getting to with some of our historical greats, we've de-emphasized the crossover value of running on the grass and how it can make you a better runner in the larger picture. Yep. And we have overemphasized what are the times you can run on the track, not just winning on the track, this but times time. you can, marks you can hit, feel, overemphasize. It's, it's going to be such a magnificent event. And I hope the next time it's in the United States, we see more of our best on the start line. I do understand the difficulties in traveling, really a day of travel each direction to make this happen. Uh, For example, I understand that Pat Tiernan had visa issues and is part of why he was not at the Australian trials getting over from the States to Australia last week. I believe he has applied for a discretionary pick because you'd have to think, given his collegiate success, that he would be, yeah, he'd be a great member on that Aussie 10K team. He's the perfect example. A guy like that with college success so with a solid debut marathon at Chicago this past year, he's been good on the track in the 10,000. We have guys like that too, and I wish we were getting to see them on this stage. It leads a little bit to one of the questions we're going to get to later of just let's reemphasize competition mm-hmm. over just time trialing because it has more benefit than just in that race that day. It carries over throughout an athlete's career, regardless of the level of that athlete. I'm sure these top performers have 
even more reasons why they're not going. Those are the, the ones that come to my mind. Uh, for the people who get the shot, I'm so excited for them. We're going to put good people on the line in Australia. There are great names on those lists. Okay, Phil, let's move on to some topics from listener questions. We have some good ones this week. Yeah, these have been great. These have uh, all since about the first of the year have flowed in. First, from one of the original friends of the show, that is our guy, David. David, thank you so much for your contribution. David said, recently you all discussed increasing durability by increasing stimulus near the end of workouts or long runs. I'm wondering if increasing weekly mileage would lead to increased durability as well. If so, how would you recommend safely increasing weekly mileage as to not get injured? Great question. Phil, do you want to take that first? Yeah, I'll take a swing at it first. I mean, the short answer is increasing weekly mileage is probably one of the the most effective ways to increase durability, so long as you can do that safely and stay healthy. And really, if we look at some of the clinical research, the biggest predictor of staying healthy is your capacity to do more. So essentially, doing more enables you to tolerate doing more. Building that starts with extending the long run to the degree that the rest of your mileage can support that. You know, there's kind of a rule of thumb that your long run shouldn't be more than 25% of your total weekly mileage or 33%. Personally, I think that's a bit overrated. Yeah, I do think you get into trouble when you see folks training for marathons that are doing 20 milers, 20 mile long runs, but may only be doing 30 miles a week. So balancing out, building up that long run, but then also, extending those shorter weekly runs to further support your capacity to to do that long run. So in short, I think building durability, the number one key is extending your overall mileage. So glad you brought up some of the research about how doing more actually can be a preventative step Mm -hmm. because it essentially we're talking about callousing the body to the impacts uh, of these long races. I am generally in agreement with you, Phil. I'm going to uh, take a slightly different perspective. The simple answer is yes, I agree. Increased volume appears to be one variable that yields greater durability. The next question then is, does that mean it's the path to follow for everyone? Mm -hmm. You and I are both fans of substantial aerobic volume. If we're using a three or five zone model, a lot of that zone one, zone two stuff. However, Consider your individual situation. If we have a bucket of total stress that each of us can handle until that bucket is full, but when it overflows, we go over the cliff, we need to be very aware of what other stressors we're putting into that bucket. Evaluate all the exercise, mental, emotional, work, life stresses you have before just ratcheting up the mileage. Yep. I'll, I'll interrupt you. And I, Please. I couldn't have said it better because that's a, that's a conversation that I have oftentimes with patients in the clinic is that it's not just the training load that we are trying to somehow quantify, which is challenging in and of itself, but your body doesn't distinguish variations of stress. And we talked about it here on the show before, but that's your overall mileage. That's the workouts you're doing, but that's also you know, the amount of sleep you're getting, the quality of your nutrition, the quality of all the other factors that may contribute to stress in your life. 
So the stimulus that you get from a hour long run after you've had eight, nine hours of sleep is a different stress level than what you may get waking up early after five, six hours of sleep and doing that same workout. Mm-hmm. So, you know, monitoring how just overall your mood and how you feel helps to track that pretty effectively. Good addition, Phil. You went to extending some of your shorter, easier runs as a key consideration. I would first ask how many days per week are you running? And adding more days might be the best course because if adding a fifth day of running to your current four is done and it's done very easily, it's unlikely that that adds significant stress. Now, to your point about extending those other easy days, yes, to a point, right? We're not going to extend them all. This goes back to our conversation last week about uh, the question that came in of multiple medium long runs in a row. There's a limit there. So are you doubling? Again, this one can work if you have the time and energy. That's critical. In David's case in particular, I know he has a young family, so this might not always be the best use of his time. It might work at times, but it's probably not something he's going to every single day with work and little kid at home and all that kind of stuff. Moreover, I don't know if I see this as the most beneficial step if you are presently running less than an hour a day on average. So that maybe goes to your point, Phil, about extending some of those shorter runs. If those are 30 minutes right now, and you're doing them, let's say, five days a week, I might add a sixth one. And then I would look at the time of doing that at potentially extending some of them and, and ebbing and flowing as some of them move towards an hour. Now, for the people who are running an hour consistently, which I guess we maybe should, should start calling that the Dr. Phil workout, because I know that's your, your favorite workout, the easy hour. Getting to that is, is the better first step, probably. But now, if you do start incorporating doubles beyond that, I like them a lot first as short shakeouts in the morning before a PM workout, or alternatively, as very easy recovery in the afternoon from a morning quality session. Like that's what I did today. It just feels like it expedites some of the recovery process, getting a little blood flow. Now, you're not doing that after the long, hard, long run. Right, You just get off your feet and allow yourself to recover. But after a controlled intensity session or before one, it makes a lot of sense. Also, remember the benefits of doubles are not just about mileage. I had this conversation with one of our athletes last week. Uh, Just as importantly, it might have frequency and hormonal benefits that help us improve just as much as adding more volume to our weekly totals. To the point of mitigating David's injury concern, if you address part of that, Phil, I'll just add a little bit more from a practical standpoint. Don't immediately dial up both the volume and intensity variables. Keep the sessions controlled to help the volume increase work. A couple more questions we should ask. One, is there a medium long run? That one's a nice way to effectively sneak in more volume in a form that very specifically to this durability question can help with the fatigue resistance. And then the last one I'll ask goes to Phil's discussion of what does your long run look like? Can you go longer in the long run? So how long is the long run and could it safely be longer? 
I believe we can use that question as a segue to part two of David's question. Well, and really another question that I like talking about adding that, that second run or that, that extra run to the week is you know, how do I expect to feel after I do this? Mm. And what I mean by that is if you add in that, that six sessions, you know, if you've typically been running five days a week or you, you add in that extra double, are you feeling where to throw that in, you're going to be even more fatigued and beat up? Or do you expect that you'll be feeling a little bit better and looser and moving more effectively after that? And if you know, the answer is, yeah, it's like I don't feel great right now, but after I get out for 20 or 30 minutes, I'll probably be moving quite well. And I think that's a great, great place to add it. But yeah. if we're just chasing mileage to chase mileage and you're coping through niggles and excessive soreness and fatigue, then I don't think you're doing yourself any favors. Yeah, we're never chasing mileage, but we probably should be chasing consistency. Yep. And trying to create a repeatable, if it's a week for your microcycle, a repeatable week that allows for the most consistent running that can be effectively done for your circumstance. David gets two parts to his question since he's been on board with us since day one. So David added another question. I've heard you mention the 90-minute to two-hour rule in regards to long runs. When training for an ultra marathon, let's say 50K to 50-mile distance, how often would you go over the two-hour mark to help your body prepare for the longer effort? Or would you use a different strategy altogether? First, I don't know that if there are any rules in running. He referred to that as a rule. We often reference two hours as a good long run guidance. And if you are doing two-ish hours as a long run, then 90 minutes can be a nice medium long run. So that's a great guide, but it's, it's certainly nowhere near a rule. Well, and I think for reference, the, the 90 minutes has some decent research behind it and that around that time frame, we talked a little bit about this last week, but you're seeing a lot of mitochondrial density improvement, mm -hmm. capillary density improvement. So there are some significant aerobic markers that take up to about 90 minutes to effectively get stimulated. But I suspect the two-hour mark probably is more comes from more with, mm -hmm. you know, Frank Shorter's famous quote talking about his long run, that it was 20 miles or two hours, whichever comes first. And so I wonder how much of it just comes just routine and habit on that two-hour mark versus anything hard and fast. Yeah, but Phil, I'd push back on that a little bit because as we discussed last time, we know that those processes which you start to see really kicking in at 90 minutes are getting amplified and heightened beyond that point as well. Now, yeah, absolutely. that goes off an edge at some point. We start to get diminishing returns, and I'll have you address that in, in a moment. At some point, well beyond 90 minutes, now we're beyond two hours. At some point, there are diminishing returns. So let's put a pin in that because we're going to come back to it. But let's first answer more directly David's question, which is, should I go longer or should I do something different? To that, I say, get you a man who can do both. <laughs> let's, let, yeah, let's go over two hours at times and let's also use a different strategy. There's a place for both, okay? Mm -hmm. 
the two and a half hour long run, for instance, used to be a lot more common among the top marathon training groups. And I know many who still use it regularly. If you are frequently going to two hours in marathon and ultra marathon prep, perhaps you could alternate two hours and two and a half hours with the caveat of understanding the necessary recovery from the longer long run. Beyond two and a half hours, that has its place in ultra training for sure. But remember for the masses, at at some point, as we mentioned, past two and a half hours or past three hours, we face some diminishing returns. So Dr. Phil, could you address those diminishing returns from maybe your running health perspective, the perhaps the risk you're taking? Sure. So uh, it really comes down to just loading. And you, know, you talk about the diminishing returns past two and a half hours, out past three hours. You know, to some degree, it depends on the surface. Mm, perfect. In Glad that, you said that. Yep. Go into that. Run three hours on on the road. That's a whole lot more impact than if you're out in the mountains where there's maybe some technical trail or some softer surface and some elevation where you may be moving for three hours, but your average pace is significantly slower than you may be hitting on the road. And Um, Phil, your impact forces at each strike are potentially much lower as well. Yep. So I think that that plays a role in it depending on the type of Ultra marathon you're doing, you know, as it relates to just the tissue perspective, you know, once you get to a point where you can no longer maintain good form, you know, essentially maintaining that comfortable cruising speed that you were holding at that hour mark, at that hour and a half mark, where you start to to compensate and really fatigue, you're putting a whole lot of extra stress on most of your tissues, whether that's bone, whether that's tendon, muscle that makes it that much more challenging to recover from. And so to your point earlier, I think we need to look at, yes, that's not a bad idea to extend out beyond that, but is it done at a level where you can turn around and repeat you know, a similar week more mm-hmm. frequently? Yes. Build on your point of the surfaces and the terrains that you're doing training on. That leads into why three plus hours, maybe four, five hours can work in training for ultra marathoning occasionally for most folks, not all the time, but but certainly some of the elites in that world do it. But that that helps us uh, understand why if maybe three becomes more a limiting number of hours for the road marathon training, perhaps it's longer than that at times for the ultra training, then what's the the alternate strategy? The alternate strategy is to incorporate the back-to-back long days. What is the terrain and elevation profile of your ultra race? I would want to consider that in prescribing the back-to-backs. But I'll say my favorite approach is to go long on day one with an emphasis on more like steady aerobic running. Perhaps this is something you can do with more gentle and gradual changes of elevation on a really runnable course, maybe a a dirt path or a bike path, where you might run at paces that start slow, then near or even reach that flat 50K pace. Then on day two, perhaps you go to terrain that mimics your course and do a true time on feet, 
long, slow effort to get the effect of that long-term impact loading in an ultra race when you're covering 50 miles. Well, and I know you're not necessarily a fan of this approach as well, but one thing that I would consider is potentially even just incorporating some cycling to allow you to hit those longer durations of where you're going, you know, three, four, five hours on the bike one day. You know, we want to train the run capacity, but also just the ability to keep moving for that long. So you're yeah. not impacting the loading as much on the bike. You're also able to practice your fueling strategy for moving for a duration that long, but then maybe coming around the next day and going out for, for 90 minutes or so. And this isn't something that I would do week after week, but peppered in through the training program uh, here and there would train that capacity just to keep keep moving for that duration of time. So I like using, for example, cycling as a low impact way to do two things. One, increase aerobic capacity. Right. So that's why it might get sprinkled in. You said it. I'm not a fan of that approach. That's true. It's in part because I just hate riding a bike. Like it's just, it's uncomfortable. Come on. I mean, <laughs> so for me, um, maybe I would say swimming. I might use that as a mechanism to just, you know, add to that overall aerobic ability. And we supplement with that training. Two, the bike could be used as a place to increase the power that you carry over into your ultra training because you might do sessions where you just try to hammer super high watts on the bike and you're doing it without the impact that you would get from the those loading forces. What Why I disagree with you, Phil, is yes, I understand the premise of moving for that amount of time, but there's zero specificity to what you're prescribing. And this has a place perhaps, but it's probably so far out from your race or so infrequently used that it's not at the top of my list or the middle of my list or you just don't like riding it's 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 barely on my list (laughs) but no no i am willing to admit phil that that a tiny bit of that is perhaps my bias i don't hate riding a bike as much as i lead on but i don't enjoy sitting in a saddle for five hours just remember the muscles that are being emphasized when you are using a bike. And those are often counter to the ones that you emphasize while running. My last point on this one is we've talked about the Norwegian training model in some detail over the past few months. And anecdotally, I think it's easier to get two sessions on the same day if the first is easier and intensity controlled than this back-to-back days approach. Something is happening in our fatigue and recovery processes that might make consecutive days more challenging and more ultra-like than a morning and evening session on the same day. It's a question I'd love to explore in the future. I'll leave it there. It's just what I see anecdotally happening. Yeah. Okay, next, paraphrasing an email from a new listener, Hunter in Augusta, Georgia. We're huge in Augusta, Phil. I have heard rumblings that you might hit the ceremonial opening tee shot at the Masters this year. Can you confirm? I'm not allowed to comment just yet. Okay. I think they normally reserve that for like Jack Nicholas, but you have to be close. So 
We have a listener base there. Hunter, get on the people from Augusta National. Make it happen. Hunter is training for a half marathon at the end of February. He's got a personal best of 127. It's on the same course from last year. The course is hilly, and he struggled over three large hills after getting out at around 620 pace in the early miles last year on a slight uphill. I believe that works out to like a 640 average overall. In the past, he's done a lot of threshold intervals of 4 to 10 minutes in length and a long run. Hunter wonders how he should adjust his training. He's moved to more hill workouts and has subbed more long tempos for the threshold intervals. He's up to about 60 miles per week, and he's on a cycle of five quality sessions over 14 days. Thanks for all that good info, Hunter. We can really work from that. So when I read this email, I immediately took an entirely different tack than Hunter. Of all that information, what do you think is the first thing that I latched on to? He needs a summer of hills. <laughs> he's, he's in, everyone needs a summer of hills. He's kind of in a winter of hills right now, it sounds right. like. No, it, my first thought is not the training at all. Yeah. He's doing some good work. He's consistent with his volume. And we'll maybe give some training ideas with this. But I want to know this. Is the pacing plan appropriate? Because he opened with 620s on an uphill mm-hmm. an average 640s overall so yeah the bigger hills are going to slow you down and you have to adjust for effort there but if he's in similar or better fitness as compared to last year a new best on this course could stem just from better race strategy yeah just better a better approach to the course Right. We, we generally want even to negative splits at a half marathon, and then we adapt from that approach as necessary for the elevation change. Uh, Hunter clearly faded significantly, more than just those three big hills over the second half of this race. So consider that and how you attack the, the opening miles. On half marathon course X, where I don't know any other variables of what the course looks like, a basic simple attack is the first 5K, we go out very conservative. From that 5K mark to 10 miles, we're working down to and then running at our goal pace. And then the last 5K from the 10-mile mark in, we race and run as hard as we can. Yeah. Now, that has to be tinkered with for the hills he's seeing, but it's very evident that last year that first 5K was much faster than would be recommended for... I, I believe Hunter also mentioned his goal is to cut that 87 down to 85 I think he could get a big way toward that I if he just adjusts the plan. There. I mean, because if you look at his overall training program, I mean, his mileage is certainly high enough. He's hitting a variety of workouts. The only comment that I would add in terms of what he's currently doing versus what he previously did is add in some faster hill repeats of 30 seconds or you know somewhere around there to build a little bit more strength and efficiency. Mm-hmm. But really, I think that's minor to just effectively pacing that course. Yeah, to the training, I like what Hunter's doing generally, but I would say don't dump those threshold intervals. Right. He could rotate those in with the other sessions that he mentioned. Those are directly specific to a half marathon, and with a month or so before the race, this is his specific block. So Mm -hmm. Hunter, sprinkle back in those three or five or six or eight-minute reps at half marathon pace, and remember that because they are broken into a, into segments, you can accumulate more time in that zone 
than you might with the continuous tempo. So those continuous tempos can be slightly slower, like at marathon pace, and serve as a nice direct support session, but you can accumulate time and zone at your race-specific efforts with those threshold chunks. So I understand when we want to improve, and this is not Hunter alone, we all do this. When we want to improve, we look for the ways we can change our training to get better. And he's done some of those things, it seems, perhaps most importantly, his consistency and his volume. But at times we forget about the things that got us there and were effective and we just need to continue with and, and keep building from them. And uh, I believe Hunter could do that by keeping those the threshold segments into his training. I would add, too, that beyond just the fitness benefits of those threshold sessions for his race, learning the pace discipline mm. to properly execute that race pace during that event. Yep, that was the very last thing I was going to say. Nailed it, Phil. Good. Let's get to our last one for this week. I love this question. Um, oh, my. We could have a whole episode on this one. I know. I know. It's, it's fantastic. And it sparked a huge discussion. So this comes from a buddy of mine, Eli, who is a listener and also now a co-worker. He raised this and we went for hours and just scratched the surface and felt like it needed to be shared and fleshed out more here. Eli, the big cat, asked, are race time goals, emphasis on time goals, good to have? That's a simple question, but it's in the deeper philosophical context of our recent discussions, Phil, of understanding where you are, training there, but trying to reach a goal. I'll, I'll let you open on this one, Phil. Oh, man. I'm nervous to open on this one. As My long as you don't talk about riding a bike, you'll be okay. It's <laughs> someone who has had far too many race time goals that did not uh -huh. get executed nearly to where they should be. I'm becoming more and more convinced that that's not the, the route forward for a couple reasons. One is that there are so many other factors that go into your race time that are to a degree out of your control. Uh -huh. Everything from the weather to the other participants that are around you that really can take what potentially would be a great training block and what potentially would be a great race for you and give you a disappointing result if all you're looking for at the end of the day is that time on the clock. Yeah. To me, it comes down to looking at, number one, why you're racing, and number two, more effectively executing a race plan mm -hmm. versus deciding that A, B, or C time is going to be a you know, positive result for you. And we can dig deeper on that, but uh, yeah, that's I, overview, but I'll let you comment. Yeah, I, I like that, Phil. Uh, and that's part of why I let you open on this one, just knowing that some of the challenges you've had with time-specific goals. A time goal can be a great motivator. It can anchor us amid all the distraction outside of our running that undermines our training. It's that constant reminder of what you're shooting for. Mm -hmm. Two potential negatives of having time-specific goals are, one, is it a limiter of our performance? Or two, is it so outrageously challenging and unattainable 
that we're training in a way that undermines our improvement by trying to get to that number. Those are two sides, though, of the same coin, because both are problems of the short term versus the long term. We've harped on being our own worst enemies by placing artificial ceilings on our potential. Dream big. You have far more potential as a runner than you can ever imagine. But it takes significant effort and significant time and significant focus to get there. Conversely, I think it's exceptionally deleterious to your pursuit of those most audacious goals to substitute an artificial timeline in place of that artificial ceiling. You don't have to get to Boston this year. Maybe that's achievable. But maybe you're presently 45 minutes slower than the time cutoff. What is much more achievable is remembering that you can get to Boston eventually if you make the decisions that help your improvement over time. Uh, Phil, any thoughts on how we might set some appropriate time goals or use time goals to get better? I I have some, but I'll open that back up to you if you'd like to add anything. To a degree, I I don't like that approach. And and I think it comes down to, well, we were talking about our dislike of technology earlier in email, but Hold on. Wait, we were we were using email to talk about how we dislike technology. The well, irony, Phil. Texting or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> right. When when we communicate via email, we're like luddites in today's world. But yes, that it's a technology. Yes, technologies that didn't exist a few decades ago. But regardless, right. go ahead. But so much of at least as I think about like my running and my goal setting, you know how much of what I think I am capable of or should be capable of is dictated by number one, either chasing times from the runner I was 10 years ago or trying to prove the fitness that some external device, whether that's Strava or Garmin or whatever, says that I should be able to execute versus you know, considering the whole of the training I've done, the race that I'm looking to go do, you know, is, is this a, you know, like in Hunter's case, a, a local half marathon that is probably a, a fun event, but it's certainly not a lifetime PR type course with three large hills, but that yeah. sounds like he enjoys doing that. Or am I going to do a race that I'm really not even that excited about the course, but all I want to do is chase a time. Okay. Let me interject there, Phil. It's a great point, but you mentioned Are they driven by the metrics, by the technology? I feel like you left a piece out there. Are those time goals driven by just round numbers? Are those time goals driven by, more specifically, round numbers dictated to us by others in the running community as significant? Because those seem to be the ones that we set. We set three hours in a marathon. We set a Boston qualifying time. We target breaking points like 2001 in a 5K versus 1959. How different are those two runners? Not hardly at all. But when we say we're a 19-minute runner versus a 20-minute or whatever that trickles down to, even the the best of the best in the world who have broken 13 versus the guy who's run 1301, I would take a step back and reflect on that for a minute because that's the more likely the expectation 
that's being placed from the outside of what is good versus what isn't good. And we have said here before, we have to remove expectation from the vocabulary and see racing as opportunity because mm -hmm. expectations are external factors. Opportunities are a chance to go enjoy what you would like to do in racing. They're opportunities to express your fitness. They're the chance to now have fun, to exhibit all that you've done over the course of your training. The test is hard if you're unprepared, but if you've studied well, paid attention in class, you can go into the test and leave it feeling accomplished. And that is the opportunity of race day. I do think though, Phil, we're selling the audience short if we're not going to address ways that we can use time goals effectively because people are going to have them. Oh, absolutely. Right. And you and I are going to have them as well. So maybe these are some ideas. First, once we have a number of workouts and perhaps a tune-up race or tune-up races within a particular cycle, now we might be able to use those to set a realistic goal. So rather than just setting a time goal at the beginning and working to it, maybe you're six weeks or a month out and you can look at the entirety of the block of work and set a goal from that. Yeah. And more than that, we can incorporate several tiers of goals. So that looks something like, as you said, we have to consider outside factors. So if it's a perfect weather day, the competition is good, and I feel great, I'm chasing time A. Under normal circumstances, I'm chasing time B. And if conditions are extreme and, and more challenging than expected, or I don't feel well, not in the sense of like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready to race today, but in the sense of like, oh, I have the flu, then I dial back to chasing time C. Throughout that process, though, stay focused on training where you are with an eye toward the future you want. If you are going to have a time goal, don't expect that I need to train like the person who has already run that time. If you run a 20-minute 5K, don't immediately do sub-15-minute 5K workouts. But direction determines destination. We have to point ourselves toward that North Star. The tempos and the thresholds, sessions like that should be controlled and, and completed considering where you are right now. And doing that will help you get better. But then you mix in the strides or hills, let's say, that get done at faster paces. And the increased volume, also to go back to Hunter's example, his volume has gone up the question that David asked about increasing volume, those things can move you toward the destination. I'm going to mix the responses here between the person who has a time goal and then the answer that you gave, Phil. And to me, the, the best answer is when you're actually in the race where you are pursuing your goal time, let's ask this question. Is racing rather than time trialing the path to reaching your fastest time? not just chasing, is actually racing. And so this takes us full circle back to our discussion about where Americans are sitting in the global scale of racing and competition giving the upcoming World Cross Championship. So what I'm asking is, are you better off, especially in the later stages of a race, just ignoring the watch and chasing down a competitor, then the next competitor, and so on? Because we see time and again, that yields an upward spiral. It's that feedback loop of positive reinforcement. You feel better 
and you break through a preconceived ceiling by leaning into perhaps the greatest performance enhancer, competition. And I suspect there has to be at least some competitive streak to reach any big time goal. I like your idea of setting the goal benchmark. And also think about it from a race execution perspective of you know having that time held loosely in your hand, but considering also how you're going to execute that race. Are you going to, at the beginning, stay disciplined from a pace perspective and not get drawn out? Or in the middle of the race, is it going to get, as it gets hard, are you going to be looking at your watch, waiting for the inevitable blowout to come? Or are you going to stay engaged and try to monitor your effort and to continue to to push to the degree that, that's reasonable. And from a racing perspective, are you staying engaged with the people that are around you and that next runner that's in front of you that you may be mm-hmm. trying to close down? Or are you concerned about the gorilla that's about to hop on your back and slow you down? Or the person that's coming up behind you that, that might be passing you? Judging your performance, not just on some time goal you've set, but how effectively you executed the training to prepare for the race, and then also how well you effectively executed the race. Yeah, that's good stuff, Phil. Absolutely. As a tangent to this, let me wrap my response that the entire discussion we're having makes me think of a parallel we could use perhaps to training appropriately hard for your current fitness and getting from where you are to where you want to be by understanding the chess moves, as we've talked about before, and understanding where you are in this moment. Uh, So Phil, I am sure you are familiar with the research on flow state or what athletes will often call maybe being in the zone. Can you tell me the variables present for moving into that flow state? Well, it's being pushed at a level that is just beyond your capabilities, mm-hmm. and it's tasks that you enjoy. The activity needs to be challenging enough so that it's engaging, and, and that's in running both mentally and physically engaging. But it can't be so challenging that you become a fish out of water, right? You're not totally in over your head here. You're right at the edge. You have some degree of mastery over the task in that moment. It's been two or three episodes since I referenced the 80s Celtics, so we're overdue. So I'm going <laughs> to use an analogy here. 80s Celtics, you never saw Robert Parrish, the starting center, taking the heat check jump shot because he was rolling and made like eight in a row. But you sure saw Larry Bird take that shot because he could get on a heater and was one of the greatest shooters ever. Or use the same analogy today with the Golden State Warriors, Draymond Green versus Steph Curry, Mm -hmm. or Draymond Green versus even Klay Thompson as well, two of the all-time great shooters on one team. You don't see Robert Parrish, Draymond Green, whoever it is, in this position, because that's not a skill that they have some degree of mastery over. You have to be good at it in your current state. You can work to get better at it in the future, but we have to stay in this moment. And even in this moment for Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Larry Bird, etc., the flow state is fleeting. We don't stay there forever. 
But as a runner, when it happens, you feel like you're floating along, you're pressing your body to the edge, but in a way that contrarily almost feels effortless. Mm-hmm. I, I can think of specific workouts over time that felt this way. And uh, as I made some notes on what were the memories, what were those workouts? Most often, where'd they happen? Long runs, tempo runs, threshold reps, progression runs. Those were the most common. That's the stuff that is so good in endurance training for being appropriate to where we are, but making us better for the future. You'll never get into a flow state by intentionally forcing it, but maybe setting up training that controls intensity and duration at a level conducive to, let's say, producing flow state opportunities is a formula for training toward your time goals while also creating the foundation for a possible flow state experience in your race, Mm -hmm. thereby combining everything we're looking at and giving us perhaps the best of both worlds. I have to say, this is a theory that I've just been exploring in recent days. I have not spent time researching it beyond the the flow state basics, but that simple premise makes a lot of sense to me of a guide you can use to get better and maybe a guide you can use to lead you toward these time goals if there's a big number out there that matters a lot to you. It's like that Kipchoge, for example, eight out of 10, nine out of 10 workout, he probably puts himself in a space where he can have these flow state opportunities regularly. And also think about the specificity of the work he does and that generally every other week, progressive 40K long run, pushing down to marathon pace or faster. And what so often happens in a marathon, competitors push Kipchoge till 18 or 20 or 22 miles and he has another gear. Mm -hmm. And so if you've prepped yourself for the specific demands of your time goal, you might put yourself in a spot where you're more likely to have the flow state experience while you're attacking that time goal in a race. That's such a fun question to think about because it boils down uh, essentially while we run. You know, are we chasing these external goals or are we chasing just the enjoyment of the experience? And the answer is yes to both. So it's really more of a fun question to think about than anything that's going to lead to a solid answer. Yeah, and it's yes to a third thing as well, because you're right on those two. But then it's also yes to being the best version of yourself that you can be, yeah. at least in an athletic sense, which hopefully translates to other parts of life. It's the Michael Scott win-win-win <laughs> scenario of negotiations. Yeah, great question. You're right. We could do a whole episode on it, but we've uh, spoken enough for tonight. So. Phil, maybe take a second here at some point in your busy life to get on YouTube, look at the links that I've sent you, come prepared for the next episode. Before we go, I do want to say next time on the show, we will be joined by a special guest, a top 10 finisher in the women's race at Houston, Molly Bookmeyer. She is a Columbus Running Company athlete, and she will be with us next week on mile 141 
of the Second Slap podcast presented by Columbus Running Company and ColumbusRunning.com. Thanks so much for listening. Phil, it's been great. Great conversation, bud. As always, man. Yeah, looking forward to it again soon. Have a good week, man. All right, you too, and same to the audience. Thanks to the folks who submitted questions this week. Second Slap Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please uh, subscribe, rate, review iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and so on. And we will see you again next time.